Hello there, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Long Live Rock and Roll podcast with me, your host, Laz Michaelides, as well as our other host on the screen opposite me, Mr. Felipe Amorim. How are you doing, man? How are you doing, Laz? How's everyone doing? It's been, yeah, it's it's been really good lately here, so how, how, how's it going the countryside, Laz? It's okay, yeah. I'm playing <laughs> a spot of rugby today, obviously, because that's what English people do on their Saturdays. They have tea and crumpets in the morning, followed by a game of rugby, and then a bacon sandwich in the evening. That's the British way. <laughs> Rock and yeah. roll, brother. No good, bro. What about yourself? How are things in Soho? Yeah, well, busy. Gigging, gigging, gigging. You know, I uh, had two gigs last night, so pretty cool. In one night. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus, yeah, this guy. Yeah, yeah. This guy's a monster. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's crack on then. So we're doing yeah. an album episode today, and I've chosen the album, and... Um, the album I've chosen is Hunky Dory by David Bowie. And it's quite interesting because I'm we have basically a huge list of all the artists and albums that we want to cover. Um and obviously with with multiple with some artists there are going to be multiple albums that we want to talk about. And so I did I thought why have I chosen this one? Because before because ha- before having put it in the list that we need to do, um I hadn't actually listened to it. Uh, but I was told that it's the first one that kick-started Bowie's sort of, well, his his musically artistic career. You know, he did albums before that, I believe, but this is the one that kind of got it going for the Bowie that we know. So I chose this one because obviously, gonna, you know, we're going to do things like Ziggy Stardust in, a, you know, however many episodes time or whatever. We'll get to those ones, but this is the one that kick-started off for Bowie, um, which I suppose is why I chose it. Uh, Felipe, do you, have you heard this album before? Have you listened to it before? Do you like Bowie? Not, do you know what? I like Bowie. I like him. And it's, it's, it's a funny thing because um, when I started listening to classic rock and all this stuff, uh, it took me a while to to find anything about Bowie, maybe because I was uh, more into the hard rock kind of stuff. I, yeah. And, and I, I've listened to some of his songs. I'm like, yeah, it's pretty cool. And or maybe because I didn't pay attention to the lyrics or whatever. Because it's, it, it, you, you've got you've got to to go into the the lyrics and um, and and understand his art, you know, in, in a in a deeper way for actually want to enjoy him, isn't it? But um, I've obviously always heard about him stuff like that. But it took me quite a few years to start listening to Bowie properly. But every yeah. time I listened to something, it was like, oh my god, this is mind blowing. This <laughs> is is not predictable, like in any shape or form. Is that is is not? That's a great point. Yeah, it's it's just it's just. Each album is very different from 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 the other one, and that's why I I was wondering why you chose this one because it's how how do you choose one album to talk about you know from an artist like Bowie? So that's think, why yeah. I, thought, I thought of all of all these albums. Remember we remember guys we did Rubber Soul a few um, a few episodes ago, and I thought that if you're doing Beatles albums, you don't start at Abbey Road. Like, no. do you? you? You sort of work it up. You do Rubber Soul, Revolver, then White Album, and then you get to Abbey Road. But and I thought I kind of felt the same with Bowie. I thought, you know, we are one day we will do the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust. I know he's got um, a couple of other albums after that that are quite seminal as well. But I thought it was just interesting to, you know, this this one also gets thrown into the mix as well of his best albums. You know, Hunky Dory is quite often up there, so that's why I thought we'd do it. But um, anyway, yeah, I, I want to get started uh, by giving Felipe a quiz. Question one, which 
song from this album was the final song Bowie would sing live before his death. Oh, tough one. I would guess Life on Mars. No, it was Changes. Um, question two. Bowie's annoyance at which famous singer inspired another one of these songs? Um, is it Lou Reed? It's not, no. Oh, damn it. Didn't get one right. Do you want to know? <laughs> no, I want to know. <laughs> it's Mr. Frank Sinatra. Really? Yeah, so here's <laughs> what happened. So, um, David Bowie was commissioned to write English lyrics to a song called Comme d'habitude by a French composer called Claude Francois. He rejected them. The, the, the person who he was writing them for rejected the lyrics. I don't know why, but maybe the translation wasn't good. Maybe he didn't word it nice. And they gave the lyrics to this song to a gentleman, another songwriter called Paul Anker. Paul Anker then rewrote the lyrics and gave it to the person who then gave it to Sinatra and said, hey, sing this song. Sinatra opens the lyrics, My Way. My Way. So, the song, My Way. The chord progression in Life of Mars starts the same. It's the same chord progression as My Way. And Bowie did Life of, on Mars because he was pissed off that Sinatra got did... My Way. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> cool. Amazing. Um, and question three. Um, who left the room upon hearing one of the songs from the album, having hated it? Andy Warhol. Yay, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> you got that one. <laughs> anyway, right, so this album, the name is Hunky Dory. The artist was David Bowie. It was released in December 1971 on the RCA label. Um, and unlike, unusually, what I've done is I've actually taken quite a deep dive into the, the sort of thinking and the mental inspiration and influence that Bowie had when doing this album because it's very different um kind of different from in general what i think you'd hear from other artists so yeah there's a few influences uh in terms of themes of this album you've got insanity um he had a brother called was it terry burns who had schizophrenia and this yeah. this theme comes up quite a lot in this album uh his wife was pregnant and he was about to be a father for the first time so he was dealing with the immense pressure of having to bring a child into this world, becoming a, a responsible parent for this child. Um, he'd also been reading a lot of cult books, watching a lot of movies about the occult and listening to vinyl records and stuff like that. And someone summed it up and said, this album is an honest account of a man struggling to make sense of his life. Um, what have you done in regards to sort of reading up on this album? Have you well, that's, musically I, I, listened or have you looked at the lyrics? I've looked into the lyrics, man, all of them. And uh, you've mentioned the, the, the Bully Brothers, isn't it? The last song. That's it, yeah. Uh, which is which is about his brother, about insanity. And I think that song, for instance, is about the way his brother perceives him. It's, 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 that's insane. He's trying to uh, picture himself through the eyes of his brother, who who is mentally ill. Yeah. Uh, and it's And it's like... Is trying to make sense of it, trying to understand someone else's point of view. So I think it's a, it's a the the album in general, like lyric wise, is really really deep, uh, and it, is, it, it, it digs really deep into the human soul. Um, I think the way I perceive it, Bowie is picturing an unfinished image of himself. 
Wow. To get it. Say that. Because it's like, I still don't know who I am. Right. It starts with changes. So as I said, he's he's not sure about, um, you know, am I, am I going to be a good father? Was I a good brother? Right. Who are like? Why am I influenced by Bob Dylan, Andy Warhol, and and uh, um, Lou Reed? Because those guys are there, you know, in the album. And it's it, it's so honest, in my opinion. You know, the yeah. way the way he he pictures all of that. And it's for me, it's unfinished. It's not like I don't know who I am, but I'm putting it out there anyway. Yeah, <laughs> it's really funny because the whole album. I don't know if you know this. The whole album. All of the songs, apart from one song, which is uh, Fill Your Heart, which is a cover, all of these are tracks written by Bowie that were intended for other artists. All of them. Wow. All of I, them. I knew about uh, Life on Mars. I, did, I didn't know that he was pissed off with Frank Sinatra, but I knew about uh, that that connection um, with My Way, but I didn't know that all of them were. So he was he was like write, doing songwriting for other people. Yeah, if you probably probably got it. rejected. <laughs> no, you never know. Yeah, I mean, if you, you can actually look into each song, um, I have I've got. I mean, I wrote so much about each song that I won't be able to find it. But um, each song was written for different different people. You know, whether friends yeah. or his. Of you know, the, the Sinatra one. You know, had he gotten the Sinatra yeah. one right, maybe <laughs> maybe it'd be my way, written by David Bowie and Sinatra. You never know. Um, but yeah, that's the funny thing is that they all were written initially for other people, and I think. Why that's so interesting is because you've got quite a mix of stuff on this album. And I know it's all one kind of... We were speaking the other day. What was that last album we did? Um, We did Jethro Tull. We did Aqualung. Yeah. uh, And we've done a few albums where we've spoken very openly. Uh, You know, The Animals as well. We spoke how we can hear so many different genres in their music. You know, one song might be a Motown mixed with some funk the next song might be a pop rock ballad mixed with some this that or the other yeah this i feel like it's all the same i feel like he doesn't stray off the path too much but you're hearing so many different sides of what he can do as a songwriter yeah and there's, and i i think um his vocals are like um emphasized by the way they arrange the songs yeah. because okay he he wasn't famous for being a technical singer but he could deliver so much emotion and and he was so expressive and i think uh, uh the way they produced the album uh was intentionally uh uh displaying this this uh vocal ability he has uh because if you think there's a formula that happens like pretty much through the first half of the album which is okay what's that verse verse on piano and vocals only and the band joins them for the chorus and then you know drops out and then it's just yeah. uh, uh piano and vocals again Good you know point. so there's a lot there's a lot of just uh it's rick wakeman on piano by the way right yeah <laughs> you, yes. you just confirmed that information to me so it's it, it it's like come on you got a world-class musician like rick wakeman uh playing like uh, uh often he's playing simple stuff but like it's dramatic, isn't it? The, the whole the piano, the 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 strings are very dramatic as well. So there's there's a, there's a uh, it feels to me like there's an element of opera sometimes in, with the strings, with the yeah yeah, and and there's uh, yeah. So it, it's it's quite um, I think you can clearly see that the instruments are there. They are well played, but they're mainly serving the vocals. They like let's make 
boys shine which is yeah. what you should do in an artist album not a band album no. that's a good point yeah i mean talking we've already spoken a bit about the bule brothers um you mentioned the opera for me there's such a you know the end of the song where the cockney the cockney i can't remember the lyrics but the um, you have those cockney voices singing um the, the outro of the song after bowie's done his part and it felt really um really musical theatre to me. You know, you just said, oh, yeah. just said the musical theatre where you've got those Cockney voices. I, I wish I could remember the lyrics, but they say, you know, oh, he's a jolly man. You know, it's like, it's like, like a chorus of a musical theatre group. And, you know, this is Bowie. This is drama. It's dramatic. Well, and, and, and if you listen to Feel Your Heart, the, the, um, the, you have a piano that sounds a bit like ragtime, which is the, you know, one of the genres that, that, that was there in the, the, the beginning of jazz. So it's part of what created jazz. So a bit of ragtime piano and the, and, and the strings and drums playing with brushes. That's a bit New Orleans somehow. Yeah. <laughs> somehow <laughs> in the middle of a song, there's nothing to do with that. So yeah, and, and I think all of that, again, is, to, is just to emphasize the lyrics and the melodies. And, uh, and it's everything in terms of the instruments is really creative, but uh, clearly in the background for me, it's like, Listen, there's yeah. you know there's some cool stuff going on, but let's listen to the singer. Yeah, you know? and, okay. and 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 the songs are short. You know, all so yeah. all songs are short. So I think I I'm gonna guess that you might you might not even be aware of this, but I think you like this album because it the, it probably reminds you of Frank Zappa somehow. Am I? That's really because <laughs> I know you're a big that. Zappa yeah. fan. That's crazy because there because is an element of Zappa somehow. There is, yeah, you're right. Actually, that's that's crazy because I thought that my I thought that myself yesterday when I listened to a few of these songs, um, mainly the start of Andy Warhol, the end of the Bule Brothers. You know, all the weird shit. That was what I thought yeah. of Zappa. But it's you know at the end of Bule Brothers, there's a um. Uh, he, he gets the voice. I'm not sure whose voice it is, but you kind of distort it and. He makes the voice sound like this, and then he changes it up to this, and then he changes. And you know, he's he's pitch shifting the voice. And Zappa did a lot of that. There's a song called um, um, I can't remember. Uh, Take your clothes off when you dance, where he keeps messing around with this oh, voice and this pitch shifting. Oh, I see. And it's got to be roughly the same time. Maybe I think Zappa was late '60s doing this. This is early '70s. So the funny thing is that this album overall has been talked of as what people would call art rock. Now, art rock, it's <laughs> there's not really you, you can't really say who's your favorite art rock band because it's not like an established <laughs> genre. It's adding stuff, it's experimenting with unusual stylistic and technological influences, and you can hear it quite a lot, can't you? Yeah, yeah, you can. And it's and again, it, for, that's why for me it's more like a picture, you know what I mean? It's yeah. it's it's, a, it's an image. It's it's an image of of uh, uh, David Bowie's mind in that moment in time. I, I, I feel like it's yeah. it's it's like and and I'll insist on this. Is it's unfinished. It's like uh, who the hell am I? And and I'm trying to trying to figure out as I write. Yeah. And as I show, like my 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 strengths and my weaknesses to everyone. So it's like it, it, it's quite poetic. I mean, just the fact that that he actually. Uh, um, written a song just uh, called eight line poem <laughs> which is an eight line poem <laughs> it's like that's what i'm saying it's, it's so honest it's like okay i don't need to um 
there is a bit of a formula in terms of arrangements, but yeah. you can't find that on the lyrics. You yeah. know? It's like, it's the you know, I've written this eight-light poem. How am I going to call it? Okay, eight-light poem. And that's <laughs> yeah. that's what it is. And it doesn't have to be more than that. It feels to me like the, it's, it's, it's just brutally honest all yeah. the time. No, you're right about that. Um, and I think what matters a lot is, and we should talk about this now, is the writing, yeah. the composition of the album. And for those who don't know, this basically is how the album was written. Bowie would come with his lyrics. He would sit down with Rick Wakeman. I mean, just for those who don't know, Felipe, give us a quick CV of Rick Wakeman. Uh, the best piano player, keyboard player in rock in history. Is that right? Yeah, he was famous for playing with Yes um, at the, the second lineup of the band, and he played in most of their classic albums. Also, he played with Ozzy Osbourne, and he had a really successful instrumental career as well, with like with number one instrumental hits and stuff like that. So he's, he's yeah. yeah, he, he is, is the man. And if you don't know Rick Wakeman and you're into rock, uh, you should. Yeah, check we'll him put out. a couple of Rick Wakeman songs in the. Playlist. I, I, I imagine that anyone who is uh, older than us, they are very, they, they probably familiar with his work, of course. <laughs> and also, he's got one of the funniest uh, Twitter accounts on earth. Check it out. Oh, does he it's really? Funny. Yeah, he, he's good? talking about. Yeah, it's funny. Check it out. I'm not <laughs> okay, going to say. There you go. It's funny. Um, so <laughs> Bowie would come with the lyrics, and him and Rick Wakeman would sit down at the piano, and Rick would build these gorgeously crafted piano intros. I mean, what I've what I, my experience with Rick Wakeman has only ever been listening to his progressive music, and as we've said for Emerson Lake and Palmer, and you know, yes. Prog can be wanky, and that's fine. That's part of the <laughs> genre, is like showing off what you guys can do in long extended solos. So as much as I knew Rick Wakeman was amazing, and, he, you know, his his whole, the success and literal um, talents of his musicianship isn't just because he can play fast, but that's what I'd been exposed to. So having heard this, and hearing those fantastic piano intros on uh, Oh You Pretty Things, Life on Mars, um, just so tasteful and really appropriate for the song. It really reminds me of this El Elton John kind of songwriting style, isn't it? But the yes. difference is Elton John does his own thing. I think it's fantastic here. You know, if you think, put yourself in the mind of Elton John, you're playing your piano and you can hear your melodies coming. And if the melody's too simple or if the melody is too um complicated then you simplify the piano or vice versa but you do this all in your head because you're doing both instruments but for wakeman and bowie to come together and write piano parts that fit bowie's medleys so beautifully that's just exquisite playing, isn't it yeah it's 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 two music geniuses working together really and uh wakeman is essential to the album yeah. Bowie wasn't a uh he wasn't a, an instrumentalist. Yeah. You know, he was he wasn't a guy who would like you know pick the guitar and come up with uh really complex chord progressions or anything. He was a guy who was writing lyrics and melodies and that was his main thing. So you need a uh, a a partner to actually uh provide you whatever whatever um uh, uh, foundation you need for your music, and I think Wakeman is just perfect because, as you said, he would play complex stuff and very creative and challenging stuff when he was doing the prog rock or his solo career stuff. Uh, but it's he he played with Sabbath 
you know, and loads of the, the, the songs and, and he played with Ozzy. He knows how to serve artists. He knows how yeah. to play for the music and, and he doesn't make it by uh, about himself. It's not like, yeah, I'm playing here so you can you know, check it out how good I, how good I yeah. am on the piano, which he can do that in a, in a prog rock context, okay. but he wouldn't do that with an artist. Here's the thing I, I think though, comparing this album to, or to prog rock, because you can see because of Wakeman, because of the high level of uh, uh, um, experimental uh, um, stuff, you, you might even consider that there's some similarities with, with prog rock, but the difference is uh, you, you're experimenting, you're mixing up different uh, styles, but you're keeping it short and sweet. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. I think it's straight straight to the point most of the time. Uh, the, the, the intros are beautiful, but they're not long. Yeah. The instruments are well played, but there's not too many notes. It, it's all serving uh, the vocals. And I find that like beautiful. As a musician, I find it like a, a beautiful way of playing. So, you know, hats off to everyone who played in the album. They're really, really good. Yeah. So talking of the band, um, here, yeah. here are the members who played on the album. You've got Bowie on vocals, guitar, saxophone, and piano. Um, I mean, again, you, he, I know there's... Bowie did a few of the piano intros, but mm-hmm. Rick Wakeman was the main piano player here. Um, so Bowie, vocals, guitar, saxophone, and a bit of piano. Mick Ronson, guitar and backing vocals. Trevor Boulder on bass and trumpet. Mick Woodmansey on drums and Rick Wakeman on piano. And the producer, Ken Scott of the album, he played the ARP synthesizer at the start of Andy Warhol. So those are your musicians. Um, and we touched on Bowie and Rick Wakeman doing the bare bones of the songwriting in terms of getting melodies, chords, harmony, progressions, all there together. But the third man who we can't miss out at all is the guitarist Mick Ronson. Because what Mick Ronson did is he did, he was in control of all of that stunning orchestration that you hear through the album. The strings, the brass, the clarinet, all you know, the whole orchestral stuff. If you hear that, that was Mick Ronson arranging that. And my God, just thinking about you know the the strings on Changes are lovely. Life on Mars, the orchestra, yeah. I mean, the strings make that song. You know, towards the end, you got this huge, the strings dun da 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 da, like this huge the ending of like a space movie. You know, I imagine Life on Mars. I always want to see it alongside Two Thousand and One, A Space Odyssey. You know that movie because. It just fits so well. Life on Mars, you know, <laughs> that's space. And I just think, you know, we can't forget Mick Ronson because the the things, you know, that I don't really see there being any musical... Um, I don't think there were any musical innovations or pioneerings on this album. I don't think anyone, you know, we've spoken about Van Halen's first album, right? Well, Van Halen's, uh, his guitar tapping was seminal. The mixture between a high poppy voice and metal music brought about the, the start of glam metal. This isn't special musically, I don't think. There's nothing here which says, oh, well, that was the first time this happened. They all do a good job. But you said it with Rick Wakeman, they are playing for the purpose of the song. And more often than not, as long as the piano, orchestra, and Bowie are there, then the job for the drums and bass becomes very easy. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just not getting the way, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's about Literally not getting the way. For the song. Um, there's so many, so many parts uh, of the song that don't even have a groove. There's no, yeah. there's no drums and bass. And, uh, and, and, and the, so the songwriting is so powerful that if you reduce any of those songs to either acoustic guitar and vocals or piano and vocals, they still sound amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah. that is... You said that is, about Jeffro Tull on the yeah. last episode, Drimba, a few yeah. episodes ago. Yeah, I, that, that's one way I measure stuff. Some and some, You can't say that about uh, prog rock in general, because it's about, you know, if you pick a 12-minute song with loads of solos and arrangements, you can't do that. Yeah. With Aqualung, you could do that, which is unusual for a prog rock band. And with this uh, album by Dave Bowie, it's, 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 it's the same. So it's, it's about the songwriting. And I think it really communicates. I think it, it, it might resonate with people because, as I said to you, it, it's, it's honest. It's like, this is yeah. who I am. As I'm trying to make sense of myself. I'm trying to understand the world around me. And, um, and uh, yeah, and I'm writing about it as I think. It, it feels to me, okay, it feels to me that he had no filter between his thoughts and his pen. Yeah. Basically, that's how I feel. Like I was like, oh yeah, I'm writing it down. You know, like uh, there's no, yeah, all the lyrics are very spontaneous and, and quite unpredictable most of the time, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's fun, isn't it? Because so let's do that now. Let's talk sort of thematics of the album. Um, yeah, one big theme of it is children, and like I mentioned yeah. at the start, you know, this this impending sense of I'm not going to say doom at all because it's not doom when you bring a child into the world, but um apprehensiveness he didn't know what it was like to be a father he didn't know what it was like to, to to be a dad and to have a child someone that you've got to care for 24 hours a day and so if we look at songs you know track one changes um now the first verse can be thought about to be you know the whole point of the song is that he's priding himself in his confidence he's staying ahead of his competitors you know the line look out all you rock and rollers you know, time makes <laughs> He's giving the hint there. Verse one is about the artists trying to be different and trying to branch out from the mainstream. But verse two is about clashing between parents and children and urging the parents to let them kid to let the kids be themselves so that they can grow yeah. artistically. Um, and I thought that was interesting in regards to the kids. Um, the track five, which is called Kooks, this song was actually written to his son, uh, Zoe. So hold on, sorry, segment. How rock and roll is that? Right, so here we are with the how rock and roll is that segment. And the question I have to ask Felipe. Felipe, how rock and roll is it that David Bowie named his son Zoe so that he could call him Zoe Bowie? <laughs> Wow, that's that is rock and roll. I'll, I'll I mean, give you a, uh, I'll give you a seventy-seven. Fine, seventy-seven. I mean, that, there's there's calling your children funny names. You know, we spoke about Frank Zappa. He had four <laughs> kids. The most normal name of his four kids was Ahmed. Ahmed Zappa. The other was Dweezil, Moon Unit, and check this out for a name: Diva Thin Muffin Pigeon the Third Zappa. <laughs> Third. <laughs> the third, as if there's been three more. Anyway, that's just calling your children stupid names for the sake of it. Yeah. Bowie, had, yeah, but, but, Bowie had, a, had a reason here. He wanted the rhyme. Zoe he wanted Bowie. a rhyme, exactly. That's very musical, <laughs> very poetic. But, I mean, that's yeah, I want, I, I want to make something funny. I'm going to use my, my child to do so, yeah, like exactly. giving, it a funny, giving my child a yeah. funny name oh, and anyway. rhymes. Right. Oh, man, he's... So, a, 
He wrote That's the song Hooks for Zoe, his son. Listen, yeah. Zoe's real name is Duncan, I think, officially on the paperwork, mm-hmm. but I think everyone calls him Zoe, apparently. Um, and he actually wrote it in the style of Neil Young, which you can hear, this very sort yeah. of, kind of country acoustic guitar groove. And the reason was because when he got the news of Zoe's birth, he was listening. He was to Neil listening Young. to Neil Young. Yeah, did you know that? <laughs> yeah. it's lovely, yeah. isn't it? Really nice. It's so you know, fuck it. I'm, I'm here listening to Neil Young. A huge moment in my life has happened, so I'm going to take this inspiration and this influence and turn it into some art. And that's how we have the song Kooks. But isn't this funny? Like what you were saying, we've got this, we've got this continual pattern of Bowie just reflecting on his life at that moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's it, you know, and using the uh, the immediate inspiration, like, oh, I'm listening to to uh, to this kind of music, so I'm going to write like that. Yeah, uh, and oh, I'm going to write a song for Bob Dylan. It's going to be called "Song for Bob Dylan." So it's <laughs> yeah. it's you know straight to the point and uh, and uh, yeah, very spontaneous. I think that's that's yeah. the main thing. And I, I like I like the, the these uh, reflections, this. Uh, this questions he seems to be asking himself and and throwing out there, you know, for yeah. everyone. Because I'm gonna I'm gonna mention my my favorite line on the album it's from okay. the song Quicksand. I'm I'm sinking in the quicksand of my thought, and I ain't got the power anymore. So that for me sums up the album. Yeah, he's got it's, he's got so much going on in his head that he's yeah. It's like he just can't handle it. That maybe that's why the the song Feel Your Heart comes just after that because it's. It's kind of a break from the whole. Uh, from me, feel your heart is a song that, that breaks the mood of the album. Is it's... completely yeah. I've actually written down here. It's kind of like a counterpoint. The the whole yeah. album, you've got this anxiety, these stresses, you know, especially the yeah. lyrics of quicksand, and then yeah. he breaks it up with a yeah, song it, about imagine love and freedom. It, yeah, it takes it takes like yeah seven songs for you to kind of break the tension because <laughs> <laughs> it's all so dramatic until that point, and and then then when you have the uh, the kind of more subtle like uh, um, instrument instrumental parts in it, and I, I love the, this 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 verse, really cool. Uh, feel your heart, feel your heart with love today. Don't play the game of time. Things that happened in the past only happened in your mind. I love that line. Yeah, and uh, and it's like the fact that you know the past doesn't quite exist. Oh, okay, I'm going to give you this uh, um, um, insight I had about it. I was reading those lyrics and thinking um, about an article I read about time traveling stuff like that. So about the theories of time traveling. Oh, cool. we're talking about time traveling. Oh. So, oh my God, how far did we go? Uh, it only and, took uh, 33 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's in the past. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So basically um, this, uh, this scientist was saying something like, well, uh, theoretically we could travel time. We could travel to the future. Right. So there's a whole theory about, you know, uh, breaking the speed of sound or whatever, speed of light or I don't know, whatever you you can. I, I'm not I'm not a scientist anyway. So you could theoretically travel to the future, but you could never travel to the past because the past does not exist. Yeah, and it's just it's it's so cool. You can't go back to something that's there is not there anymore. Yeah, it existed at that's some point. point. So so that that song is really cool like things that happened in the past only happened in your mind and it makes as he's reflecting a lot about like uh, his brother's mental illness and uh, and all this stuff i think like so 
they, those things only happen in your mind because you don't know exactly what happened in the past. Yeah. You only have your memories of the past. And as Roger Waters said, memory is a stranger. So, <laughs> exactly. You know? um, sticking with the sci-fi theme, that's really interesting because – what one of his concerns um, at this time as well, you know, we already said it. We've he's got his um, trying to find out who he is as, as an artist, what direction he's going to take. Uh, the, the the birth of his son coming up slash already happened. Another thing is um, that he was. I did already mention this. He was reading a lot of cult movies and re, um, reading a lot of cult books, watching cult movies, listening to cult um, records, and he was quite. Uh, heavily influenced by some authors as well you know so uh, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche he was um listening to uh the occultist Aleister Crowley uh he was reading works by Arthur C. Clarke the book Childhood End and Edward Buller Lytton's The Coming Race and actually in the song Oh You Pretty Things it was funny because I was going to come on to this earlier about his child because you can also just from some of the lyrics you can hear Oh, you pretty things, you know, they're, it's about the welcome of a child. But also, the lyrics get a bit darker. This is his thought, or his thoughts, on coming generations, but not just the generation of his son. It's talking about scientific and technological advancements, um, that humans were being replaced by a homo superior Gemma, gotta gotta make way for the Homo Superior. Well, um, he said uh, there's a line. Of, uh, I got it. I got it here on my notes. Uh, which song was that? Well, yeah. Oh, the second song. Oh, you pretty things. He yeah. says Homo sapiens have outgrown their use. Yes. It's the same lyric you said, but um, with what I said before. They're the start of the coming race. The Earth is a bitch. We finished our news. Homo sapiens have outgrown their use. All the That's nightmares so came today. It's such. I love that song, man. But musically as well, it got it got compared at the time to um, uh, "Martha, My Dear" by the Beatles. All right. You hear that the the kind of honky tonk piano going on, like you know, very simple, just the vocals and the piano. Um, and Bowie also compared uh, the bass line to a Paul McCartney bass line. So no guesses for who influenced um, his thought yeah. on, uh, on "Oh You Pretty Things." But yeah, I just thought it was funny that you're just hearing. And through the album, there's a song. Is it song nine or ten? Which one? Maybe even eleven. Nine is um, song for Bob Dylan. It could be that one. It's the one where he actually mentions Churchill. Um, oh actually, no, that's that's quicksand. That's quicksand. Is it quicksand? He, yeah. he mentions Alistair Crowley and Churchill in the same song. That's it. So <laughs> he's talking about his influence. I mean, not influences, but what he's been reading. And I just yeah. wonder, you know, is there ever been such an obvious, an obvious um, statement about what has inspired this album? Because look at what he's done. You know, Cooks is or Cooks is so obviously about his son. On the hand notes, on the handwritten notes that come with the vinyl or whatever, he's written for small Z near the back for, for Zoe, for his son. Yeah. Um, in Quicksand, he spoke about um, Crowley and Churchill. Yeah. And he's just making this so obvious, a song for Bob Dylan. Uh, what does he say? This, uh, here's a, now hear this Robert Zimmerman. I wrote a song for you. Strange young man named Dylan with a voice like sand and glue. That's funny, by it's... the way. Um, <laughs> he's just naming all of... And when he's not naming them, he is 
going out of his way to sound like them. <coughs> Excuse me. It, it, the song... Sorry, sorry, let me just quickly. Queen Bitch is just a, 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 such a fantastically original way to make a song try and sound like the Velvet Underground as much as possible, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. You, you've got all the elements there because it, it talks about nightlife. You have the kind of um, up-tempo groove and you have the kind of double tempo for the chorus and pre-chorus, and it's and it's it's a straightforward rock song. Yeah, it's not complex. It's yeah, it's totally Lou Reed, really. Is, it, it really yeah. is, and it's it could have been written by him. Think about it. How dare like you the say Bob that? The Bob Dylan one. The Bob Dylan one sounds just like yeah. a Bob Dylan song. Uh, that, that's it. I think I think he was Bowie at this time. He was totally fearless. Like yeah. I'm just gonna do an album the way I want it, and it's like, and and yeah, and there is a a connection between the songs in terms of production and arrangement. They they do make them sound like part of the same thing, but lyric wise, there is no basically there's no compromise. There's it's no just like I'm gonna I'm just like I want to say this, I'll say this, and that's it. No compromise, yeah. and and no uh, um no necessity to stick to a theme. Although yeah. it's about you know a man growing up and and starting a family or whatever, there there this that's that, and then reflecting but, on his but, brother but, and the past. But no, but I hear what you're saying because it, it it's that's not a theme that's going on throughout the album. Much more in this song and a tiny bit in this song. It's just two songs are about his his son. You got three about the the, the occult and the philosophy of life, and then you yeah. got a couple about his influences. You know, yeah. So yeah. let's talk about his influences. Andy Warhol, Bob Dylan, and Lou Reed slash Velvet Underground. Um, all really kind of important people at the time. You know, the Velvet Underground were doing quite a lot for for, for rock music. Um, moving on from the kind of Beatles-esque rock and roll we were used to in the 60s, bringing it much more modern, Make you know, slowly making, not the change to heavy metal and hard rock, but bringing in some of those harder sounding guitars, um, and Lou Reed as a frontman was just quite special, especially in the seventies. Bob Dylan, I mean, this is what this is what Bowie said about song for Bob Dylan. The meaning behind the song was that Dylan did for folk and pop what Bowie wanted to do for rock and roll. And this is what Bowie said: "There's even a song, song for Bob Dylan, that laid out what I wanted to do in rock." It was at that period that I said, okay, Dylan, if you don't want to do it, I will. I saw that leadership <laughs> void. Even though the song isn't one of the most important on the album, it represented for me what the album was all about. If there wasn't someone who's going to use rock and roll, then I'd do it. Wow. Which is funny because actually that doesn't really make an entirely amount of sense because he wrote all these songs for everyone else. Yeah. And if and when they weren't used. By the way, guys, some of these were recorded... Um, so, you know, what? which one is it? It was um, Oh You Pretty Things. That was a hit for Peter Noon in June 1971. So it was released. It was used for its original intention, but then uh, Bowie afterwards wrote his version of it, um, which is funny, like I said, isn't it? Because he's he's trying to say that it's an important theme of the album, but we've just said that actually there is not really a common link between all of these songs. What, what are your thoughts on that? I I think again it's just um it's just a reflection of 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 that moment in time that's what I think it, and it's it, okay yeah. yeah oh no I know this yeah he is written songs for other people but they maybe they couldn't be suitable for anyone 
Yeah. Really. Yeah, you never it's, know. Because it's so personal. It's so personal. <laughs> exactly. Um, some of this stuff. Like, how, how would you how would you dare to sing lyrics that are not, they're like, obvious and shocking at the same time then they you know as you, you, you use the, the 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 word obvious and he is straight to the point with loads of stuff and it's kind of okay i'm really talking about this i'm going to mention the names you know i'm going to say uh dylan i'm going to you know uh name a song after andy warhol that kind of stuff so it's very direct to the point but uh but it's his choice of words and not it's not predictable so yeah. I, f- I find it really hard for anyone to interpret a song uh, where the lyrics are, you know, that complex, but <laughs> delivering a simple message at the said, same time. Let me tell you what he said. Um, I tried to, i got to find which song it is. Uh, right. So it is the Buley Brothers, because there's a lot of sinister and kind of suicide, homoerotic, nightmare kind of stuff in this song. The lyrically is mm-hmm. quite odd. But he said, it's a song for the American markets because the Americans always like to read into things, even though the lyrics make absolutely no sense. <laughs> so that's him. That's him saying that, you know. That, and I think, you know, with the Buley Brothers things and some of the lyrics, you can look into that about the relationship with his brother. But for a songwriter, it doesn't always have to be that way. It doesn't always have to be, oh, I'm writing a song about my brother. And so I'm going to start with that thought in mind. Sometimes you can just, and I say this as someone who has written a handful of songs for myself. They're not famous songs. They're not, you know, they're not, they may not go anywhere, but you can sometimes just take a thought or a feeling, or you look out the window and you see something, you see a movie on your shelf, um, a poster in in your office and you think, oh, okay, maybe I can, you know, how does that make me feel? Let's try something with that. And maybe as he goes on with the lyrics, that's when he starts drawing influences from his life, like his relationship with his brother, like his his son's birth coming forward. But it really is just, it's just the portrait of a man in his life at that time, isn't it? Trying to make sense of his life. Yeah. And it's like, well, it it feels to me like, I, I, I don't know where I'm going, but, I have no fear. That's how so it's fear like. Yeah. Head. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's like let's just go for it. Let's embrace. And I, I find it hard to, to be honest, to listen to this album without commitment. You know, like I think you need to. If you have a record player, is even better. You know, put the vinyl there. Yeah, it's isn't it cool to just, as I said, spare forty-five minutes of your day to listen to a masterpiece like this one. Yeah, you know, because yeah. it's because there's so much in it. There's so, so many layers of information and feelings and and poetry. Uh, it's yeah. The, so so again, I believe if if um if there's a, a legacy that that we're gonna uh, leave with this this uh, show is like make people think about art in a different way. Like listen to, listen to to music. Try to understand what the artist wants wants to give it. Because people like Dave Bowie, I think they lived life in a, in a, in another level you know they experienced things uh in, in such a way and they were capable of translating feelings that maybe we all have but they were capable of translating those feelings into melodies and words mm. so yeah let's appreciate that why not I, I would not be surprised if i listened to that not knowing 
that he had written it for other people. I wouldn't have been surprised if you told me because there are there isn't really a consistency with the songs in terms of style, genre, lyric. They're all a bit of this, you know. Life on Mars gives you your glam rock, you know, that he very you know pushed on with that. You got Kooks, which was quite this uplifting indie hippie acoustic song. Um, Bob Dylan was a Bob Dylan song. Queen Bitch was a Velvet Underground song. Um, and then you got things like you know Oh You Pretty Things and Changes, which for me became sort of staple. Bowie, I love those tunes. Very early Bowie, um, but yeah, man, it's a fantastic album. Uh, what would you have anything else to, to finish up on? What are your thoughts on it? Oh, I think I think uh, this is one side of Bowie. It's the start of what he was to become. Yeah. But the fact that he didn't uh, um, he didn't try to repeat himself is just beautiful. And this yeah. is one. So the, what he did in this album. You can't find those elements elsewhere. You can't find it in, in his other albums. It was he so wasn't important. trying to repeat himself. Exactly. Yeah. It was so important for that time, wasn't it? Yeah. For, the, for that moment in his life. So I'm going to finish off with, uh, with the Laz monologue. Um, just right. give you my, my, my usual little couple of sentences at the end. So these are my thoughts on the album. Hunky Dory is a wonderfully written album that blooms from the orchestration of, of Mick Ronson based around the masterful piano skills of Rick Wakeman. It enables Bowie's voice to be free and perform, allowing the listener to engage with Bowie's thoughts and lyrics and the music be a fantastically kind of background issue. You know, the the the, the lyrics and the vocal melody are the, are the first and forefront. Now, on the lyrics, be this his concern about the impending doom of his generation, his own struggles with life and his place in the world, the homages paid to his heroes, or the nervousness surrounding the imminence of his uh, son's birth. Whilst this was a bunch of songs written for other people, Bowie has written, composed and compiled them into his own with the huge help of Rick Wakeman and Ronson and the other musicians who would then go on to be the Spiders from Mars. We have seen in this album a man who is struggling with multiple aspects of his life and he has turned those struggles into art. That was a beautiful monologue. Thank this, you. This, yeah. ha, this has become my favorite part of the show. Oh, that's really nice, bro. <laughs> yeah. you know I tell you what, I tell you how it started is that I write down sentences of my thoughts on it, just so that when we're doing the episode, if I sort of if you mention something, I think, oh yeah, you know, I wrote that. Let me find it. But then I write sentences and I say to myself, you know, without tooting my own trumpet, that's a good line. I should I should make sure I say that. So I highlight them. And then I'm like, oh, I can't find a place. Felipe hasn't mentioned the bass, so I can't mention that. Oh, do you know what? I should just put them all into one paragraph at the end and just read it. <laughs> so you know, so that is how we got Laz's yeah. monologue. Yeah. Excellent, right, guys. Well, again, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I've done it the last two episodes, so I'm not going to tell you everywhere you can find us this time. Felipe, tell them where they can find us. You can find us on the internet. There we go. Very simple. There's a thing called Google. You just type it in and we're there. So Yeah. And if you listen to this 150 years from now and Google is not a thing, but the internet's still there, so you can still find us. Can you imagine if, if Bing, Microsoft's version of Google, became the superior search engine in 150 years? We'll never know. <laughs> exactly. You know, maybe, mean, we're gonna, maybe we're going to find out by then if there's life on Mars. Or maybe we'll find out Homo oh. sapiens have outgrown their use. Yeah. <laughs> I had to search for that. I had to search for that. Thank you, guys. And uh, keep on rocking, everyone. And as usual, guys, take care and long live rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs>